Welcome to The Crossing, the sermon podcast from Washington National Cathedral. We're so glad you're with us, and we hope this week's episode gives you comfort and inspiration. Be sure to check out our other Crossing podcast, Tower Talks, where you can find untold stories from cathedral docents, volunteers, staff, and artists who have each helped make the cathedral into the national treasure we all love. And now, enjoy this week's sermon. We thank you, O God, for the majesty of this moment, for the grace that accompanies us and the mercy that spares us. We pray for this nation on the brink of such utter chaos, and yet, because of you, we remain steady and solid and committed to thy truth, thy word, and thy justice. Bless this great cathedral and its leadership that the people will continue to be blessed and we will continue to hear your word. Amen. You may be seated. To the very Reverend Randolph Randolph Marshall Hollerith, the extraordinary dean of this incredible cathedral, to the Reverend Canon Jan Naylor Cope, to Verger Scott Sanders, to the Reverend Canon Missioner Leonard Hamlin Sr., who brought me to the attention of this great cathedral and its leader. What an honor it is to be here today and to have the opportunity to stand where this great dean and such great leadership throughout our history has stood. I am mindful that this is an august occasion and one of extraordinary honor. And yet as a preacher of the gospel, I am reminded that every time we stand, we do so in the name of him, in the name of her, in the name of God, who has blessed us and continues to lead us. I want to dedicate this sermon to a quartet of black women, Mrs. Addie Mae Dyson, who birthed and nurtured me, Ms. Carolyn Brown, confidant and friend, Susan L. Taylor, founder of National Cares Mentoring Movement, the Queen of Black America, on the occasion of her 75th birthday, and the Reverend Marcia L. Dyson, brilliant thinker, grassroots theologian, without whose love and forgiveness I would not stand here today. This morning, in the spirit of the American prophet Martin Luther King, Jr., a man who stood in this very pulpit on the Sunday, giving his last sermon 
before a report rang out on April 4th, 1968 at about 6.01 p.m. across the parking lot of the Lorraine Motel where his jaw was shattered, his necktie cut off, knocked back to the ground, and his legs and feet bicycling through the banister, and his companion, Ralph Abernathy, extracting from a laundered shirt a cardboard to scoop up his blood into the jar, saying, this is the blood of the prophet, the greatest American in my mind who has ever lived, the greatest prophet this nation has heard. In his spirit, Dr. King, who in 1963 published an imaginary letter from the Apostle Paul to American Christians, I offer this sermon, an imagined letter from the Apostle Paul to America in a time of crisis. St. Paul's letter to America. Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, grace be unto you and peace from God our Creator and through our Lord Jesus Christ. I've pondered long and hard about writing this missive. I have avoided speaking on political matters so that no one could accuse the church of being captive to any party. But the chaos in your country leaves me little choice. Beyond the global pandemic that has stricken the world and cruelly plagued people of color in your country, America is as bitterly divided now as it was when kinfolk slaughtered each other in a war over the liberty of black bodies. Just the other day, a brutal throng of citizens charged the Capitol and desecrated both its neoclassical architecture and its democratic dreams of ancient Greece. As you know, I had a sharp conflict with Athens in my sermon at the Areopagus. But I must defend America's flawed democracy from the militants on the mall. Yes, America has miserably failed to deliver to many of you the freedom and justice promised to all of you. Yet those who writhed in abortive insurrection resent black citizens for demanding the very rights the capital insurrectionists feel they are being denied. In the wake of this carnage, many citizens claim that what occurred at the capital is not America. The sad truth is that for many people, this is the only America they know, an America that spills blood in the name of misguided patriotism, an America willing to avert its eyes from truth in the glare of baseless conspiracy, an America that worships at the altar of the Second Amendment while making an idol of weapons and betraying the Second Commandment, an America that spews disgust at the dark foreigner and harbors hatred for the brown immigrant, an America that despises as enemies those who cry out that black lives matter while waving the traitorous banner of Confederate bigotry. This is America and has been America since America became America. 
the willful ignorance of these unflattering visions of your nation has fled your belief in American exceptionalism. You have turned a few lines from Tocqueville into sacred belief and holy writ. Thinkers and leaders across the political spectrum say that America has a special character and unique destiny. But other nations believe that God or fate guided them through the ills of history and the tragedies of time to a triumphant destiny. Various empires of the world have believed they were exceptional. Think of the Rashidun Caliphate or the Portuguese Empire. Consider the Songhay Empire and the Russian Empire as well. I can tell you from personal experience that the Roman Empire thought it was pretty special too. And its advocates boasted that the sun never set on a British Empire that colonized territories and peoples around the globe. I must warn you that no nation is spared divine judgment and that only God is exceptional. No country, no group of people, no collection of territories or political ideals is exceptional. Remember I said to you in my letter to the Romans that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Many nations think that their water is wetter, their sun brighter, their ways superior, their vision clearer, their beliefs purer than those of their chief rivals or sworn enemies. The moment a nation believes that its sins don't diminish its moral standing, it is on the road to perdition. If no country is unblemished, then it is not truly exceptional. That hasn't kept the citizens of some nations from bathing in cultural narcissism or political delusion. A delusion that leads nations to accuse other countries of being dead wrong or tragically misled. They fail to examine themselves in the mirror of national self-reflection. As the saints from the black church sing in one of their most memorable sorrow songs, not the stranger, not my neighbor, but it's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. Tragically, the spirit of American exceptionalism vexes the body of Christ. It tempts many believers to cloak their political beliefs in religious creed or church dogma. Too many of them baptize ideology as theology. My fellow Christian visionary, the Apostle Peter, please allow me to congratulate him for being hailed as the first pope, acknowledges the trap of exceptionalism. In the book of Acts, he said, quote, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right, end of quote. Our theology must challenge rather than justify American exceptionalism. There is a greater danger you must boldly confront. American exceptionalism is really white supremacy on the sly. The men who founded your nation relish talk of God while holding black flesh in chains. Many of those who say that God takes special pride in your nation seek to bless the blasphemy of white supremacy. The American church has sinned by portraying truth as white, facts as white, 
Reality is white, beauty is white, normal is white, moral as white, righteousness as white, theology as white, Christ as white, God as white, and America as white. The whiteness of America purges the nation of everything that doesn't conform to its ideals. The crude un-Americanizing of black and indigenous people is reflected in the Declaration of Independence, which paints Africans as, quote, domestic insurrectionists and Indians as, quote, merciless savages. The gospel of Christ has been shamelessly exploited by angry white citizens who mask their bigotry in faith. Many believers pervert <clears throat> the first miracle of our Lord at a wedding where he turned water into wine. Instead, they marry reactionary politics to Christian orthodoxy and turn the water of racial grievance into the whining of white resentment. I bear responsibility for a great deal of the misunderstanding about race among American believers. In my letters to the Ephesians and the Colossians, I advised slaves to obey their masters. I failed to challenge the Greco-Roman view of slavery and uttered words that were used to justify American slavery. In my sermon at the Areopagus, I railed against pagan beliefs. I scorned the worship of idols of gold, silver, and stone, but I failed to lift my voice against the enslavement of human beings. It grieves my heart to know that my words helped to lower the whip on black backs. I am deeply troubled by white evangelicals because for many of them, white counts more than evangelical. From the start of your country's history, white evangelicals supported slavery and the savage mistreatment of black people. After slavery, white evangelicals rationalized the violent segregation of black citizens from white society. They justified the callous denial of black freedom and economic independence. Violence against black Americans grew in the Jim Crow era. At the same time, white evangelicals clung to a vision of the household where men controlled women, children, and the enslaved. Black families endured vicious assaults on their civil and political rights. But white evangelicals cared little about the violence black people experienced. Instead, they fumed over the threat posed by black enfranchisement and black emancipation to the white household. White evangelicals even prayed to God for wisdom to deny black people the right to vote. I am sure some of you believe that this is ancient history. Not so quickly. Many white evangelicals support recent efforts to deny black people the vote. After your chaotic election, the cry of black disenfranchisement echoed loudly. There were plenty of immoral and even illegal schemes to block the black vote. There were photo ID requirements to cast a ballot. There were use-it-or-lose-it laws that strike voters from the registration rolls if they haven't voted in a given period. Polling places were unfairly closed. Early voting was severely curtailed. There were mass purges of black voters. It makes me ashamed to say I share the same faith as those who denounce Black Lives Matter 
after it is clear why such a movement is needed, after they patiently point out the grief and trauma they unjustly suffer at the hands of the police, after they prove that white vigilantes still target them with frightening regularity, after they point to leaked documents from the FBI obsessed with non-existent black identity extremists while white supremacists go on their merry way plotting to lay siege to the Capitol, after they emphasize studies that show black infants have a better chance of survival if they're treated by black physicians, after they show how black people are still locked up the longest for the smallest offenses, while white people who commit more serious crimes often escape harsh penalty. After they document how schools fail their children, hospitals fail their sick, and employers fail their kin. It is a bit disorienting to see white evangelicals attack upright blacks while giving a pass to shady whites. The fiendish love for America's 45th president is the most depressing example. If only because white evangelicals vented spleen on the 44th president. Of course, neither man deserved automatic endorsement or guaranteed support. To be honest, it was easy to understand why the 44th president was widely hailed. After all, he was the first black president America had elected. He was young and charming and whip-smart and handsome. An ebony dream come to life in the sordid political arena. Given that no black person before him got even close to the Oval Office, it seemed that only an act of God got him elected. The 45th president was a dramatically different animal. 44 reveled in family values and radiated a wholesome image. 45 trampled on civility and revealed his genius for nasty communication. White privilege abounded. 44 had to play near the top of his game every day just to convince the masses of white Americans to give him a chance to excel and the space to wear a tan suit. 45 flamed in fantastic mediocrity. He sank to the darkest chambers of the American soul and aroused an army of social tyrants and bitter bigots. 44 reached desperately across the political aisle to shake hands with his opponents. 45 wrapped the knuckles of even his most ardent supporters if they dared disagree with him. Because they are so stringently judgmental, you might think that white evangelicals would have embraced the man married once and not thrice. The man who knew his way around scripture and not the one who called my second letter to the church at Corinth to Corinthians. The man who sought to use his faith to heal and not the one who turned his Bible upside down amidst social tumult for a photo opportunity. The man who remained as cool as black ice and not the man whose fiery fits of temper roiled the republic.